Welcome to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin. When you think of the cowboy, what comes to mind? The long cattle drives of a Louis L'Amour novel? The shootout at the OK Corral? Denim jeans, spurs, and a Stetson? The Marlboro Man? My guest today shatters our preconceived notions of what a cowboy was and who he could be. Julian Smith is a journalist with a background in ecology who has written for several scientific publications, including Smithsonian, National Geographic, and Wired Magazine. He joins me today from Oregon via Skype to discuss the book he co-authored with David Woolman, Aloha Rodeo, Three Hawaiian Cowboys, The World's Greatest Rodeo, and A Hidden History of the American West. Julian and I discuss the lengthy history of cattle herding in Hawaii that actually predates the famous cattle drives of the Great Plains, the dangers of cowboy life on a tropical island, how the sport of rodeo was born in America, and the three men who introduced the world to Hawaiian cowboy culture. Now, on to the show. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history that you learned in school. We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools. And stories that are just too crazy to believe. The stranger than fiction and super unique. Julian Smith, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to have you. Um, so you are the co-author of the book Aloha Rodeo, Three Hawaiian Cowboys, The World's Greatest Rodeo, and A Hidden History of the American West. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how on earth you found the topic of Hawaiian cowboys? Sure, yeah. So I've been uh, a nonfiction writer, uh, journalist, and author for probably 20 years now. Um, do mostly science, conservation, history, travel, a little bit of everything. Uh, this is my third book, and I ended up co-writing it with a good friend and colleague, David Woolman. So the idea comes from a statue in a parking lot in a food lion in Waimea on the Big Island. And David came across this uh, a few years ago, and there's a little plaque on the bottom of the statue that just sums up the story in about three or four sentences. It says, uh, Ikua Purdy, a local cowboy, or Paniolo as they're called, uh, went to Wyoming in 1908 to compete at Cheyenne Frontier Days, the biggest rodeo in the world at the time, and won. And so he told me about this idea, and we started looking into it, and it turns out the, the deeper you dig, the, the more the story goes on and on, and we figured, hey, let's try to do a book about it. Yeah, so th- this was a really interesting topic, and, and, and when I saw the book, uh, admittedly my first reaction was, no, no, there's there's no way that cowboys were, were actually have an earlier history than, um, you know, the vaqueros in, in Mexico and, uh, and uh, it, later in the United States. But um, that is the case. Uh, how did cattle first come to the Hawaiian Islands? The first cattle in the Hawaiian Islands were actually a gift from the uh, British. We brought them at the very tail end of the 18th century. Captain George Vancouver dropped off about a dozen longhorn cattle from the west coast of North America. And it was a gift for the king of Hawaii, but it was also kind of a tool of imperialism, where they were trying to make all these places around the world that they wanted to eventually take over, they wanted to make them more British, basically. So, you know, they would drop off things that maybe future British uh, colonists who came by would find useful. So it was about a, a dozen cattle who survived the journey across the Pacific Ocean. And so after they were dropped off, 
the the ruler, local ruler, decided that uh, nobody could mess with them. They were the king's cattle. So he issued a decree that said if you harmed or killed any of these cattle, it was punishable by death. So within a few decades, these cattle, who nobody could touch, were pretty much running rampant over the islands. And they were digging up uh, garden patches. They were goring people. There was just obviously a huge problem. So, so they're kind, kind of a menace. Yeah, they turned into this huge menace. So they realized they needed some help to, uh, to figure out how to manage these cattle. So they actually uh, brought over three vaqueros from uh, New Spain, which is now uh, Mexico and uh, Southern California. And they brought these guys over to basically teach the Hawaiians how to, how to be cowboys. And that's actually where the word Paniolo comes from, which is a Hawaiianization of the word Espanol for Spanish. So this was all happening in the very early 18th century. And pretty soon there was a thriving uh, cattle culture in Hawaii. So um, I, before reading this book, I had this preconception, um, you know, personally having never been to Hawaii and, and I, I'm probably not alone in this. You know, I think of, of a tropical island and I think of volcanoes and rainforests. I don't think of, of cattle ranching, but but there is an environment suitable for this. Yeah, especially in places like Maui and on the big island of Hawaii, there's these really extensive grasslands um, at the middle elevations. So yeah, most of the, the cattle industry is focused and still is on the big island where, they, you know, they, obviously they have more space than anything. But uh, yeah, early on, these cattle were just feral. They were wild running through the tropical jungles. So the, the job of the Paniolo was to first go out in the jungle and find them and rope them. These uh, incredibly vicious animals with six foot span of horns. And they'd have to bring them down out of the jungles across these lava fields where there's no water and brutal hot sun and down onto the beach where they had to drive them right into the water to get them to the, the waiting ships that were that were uh, offshore and every so often a, a shark would come by and take a bite so it's yeah it's, it's definitely a, a tropical version of the classic uh cowboy trope but uh, definitely uh definitely some unique hawaiian spins on it that was incredibly interesting in in the book that they their version of cattle ranching is is far more dangerous and uh, has so much more um, so many more uh, complications than than cattle ranching on the Great Plains. Yeah, both versions are definitely have their hazards. You know, obviously in the in the Great Plains and in the Mountain West, they have uh, lots of ways to get hurt and killed. Uh, in Hawaii, it was just a, a different uh, a different version. You know, they had the tropical downpours. They had the, the you know, the range of from heat to cold. Um, and when you're running through the, the jungle on a volcanic island, you have to keep on the lookout for uh, collapsed lava tubes. And so your horse doesn't fall in and, and break a leg or throw you. And when you're, you're roping in a dense jungle, like on the, the tropical islands, it's obviously a lot more complicated because you have to go through the trees and you also have to be careful of things like galloping downhill with a steer on one end of the rope and the other tied to your saddle. And all of a sudden you end up running on opposite sides of a tree, which actually happened to one of our characters, Evan Lowe, and he ended up losing his hand in an accident. Yeah, and, and you already mentioned they, they had to somehow get these cattle onto the beach and then go into the surf and basically make them swim to a ship, right? Yeah, that was one of the most interesting parts of the whole job that we found. So 
There was no deep water ports on these islands, so the the ships that they eventually needed to load these cattle on had to wait offshore. So they really had no choice but to drive the cattle down onto the beach, uh, encourage them somehow to plunge straight into the waves, and swim out to these uh, these waiting longboats where they would tie up about a dozen to each of these boats and then haul them out to the ships where they would throw a, uh, a harness underneath their belly and literally hoist them out of the water onto the deck of the ship. And so, of course, you know, this being the middle of the Pacific, uh, there was occasional sharks that would come by, sometimes bite a steer in half. Uh, they'd have to fight them off to, to get the steers out in one piece. So, yeah, of all the uh, the tropical versions of uh, cowboying they had on Hawaii, that was probably the most vivid. <laughs> Um, and, and at one point in the book, you quote a newspaper, I can't remember if it was from Wyoming or where, but the, the author of the article uh, concludes, uh, yeah, our, our cattle ranching is relatively tame. Yeah, that was actually a Texas paper, if you can believe that. Uh, the character, uh, Evan Lowe, who ended up losing his hand and became kind of the, uh, the one-handed, uh, one-handed entrepreneur of the Hawaiian cattle world, he actually set up this uh, rodeo competition in 1908. Um, he, he was traveling around the U.S. giving presentations on uh, Hawaiian uh, Paniolo tradition. And yeah, it was a newspaper in Texas that said, wow, you know, we thought our guys were tough, but these guys might even be a little tougher. <laughs> All right. Um, so let's uh, head over uh, across to the continental United States. Um, what can you tell us about um, the cattle drive era, the boom and bust of, of the cowboy era in the Great Plains? Well, the, the classic cattle drive era in the U.S. was basically peaked in the 1860s, 1870s, when basically the situation was they had um, all, this ca- all these cattle uh, down in Texas and Oklahoma that they needed to get uh, up north where there was these extensive open range grasslands where they could fatten up these cattle. And then there were the the links, the, the railroad links to get them to markets uh, back east. So first of all, they had to drive these cattle, you know, 1,000, 2,000 miles north, you know, these kind of the classic Lonesome Dove uh, major cattle drive images. And when they got them to places like Cheyenne, Wyoming, they could set them loose in the grasslands, uh, they'd fatten up, and then they'd stick them on a train. And so that's that's actually that's really the reason why Cheyenne, Wyoming became at one point they considered it the the wealthiest town of its size in the country because it had the combination of it was close to these extensive grasslands and it also had a, a rail link because it was on the transcontinental rail route. So for about 20 years at the heyday of the the peak of the the cattle drive industry, Cheyenne was was an incredible boomtown. But then when the bottom dropped out of the market. Uh, the city's fortunes plunged just as steeply as they had risen. Yeah, the the actual era of the cattle drive is is fairly short, but in popular culture, I mean, people in the late 1800s they they seem to be obsessed with cowboy culture. Uh, what did that look like? Yeah, that was it was a really interesting time in American history and especially in the West, because, yeah, like you're saying, at the very end of the 1800s, end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, it was pretty much the transition point between the time of the uh, the classic, the open range, the cowboy image, the, you know, the, the frontier and the arrival of the modern world. Basically, you could say, you know, the first few decades of the 20th century, we had the airplane. We had the car, we had the motion pictures, you know, everything just kind of arrived at once. So, you know, out West, this was a, a real, a real conscious transition they were going through. They knew they had this, 
really unique culture and history uh, that was already starting to catch on uh, back east, even in Europe. Uh, they, they knew it was something really special, but they also saw how it was in danger of uh, fading out. And so that's why they, it was one of the reasons they organized these big competitions uh, called rodeos, where they could kind of celebrate this this cultural history, at least, you know, the white man's version of it, and, uh, you know, show people how skilled they were. And even in cases like uh, Frontier Days in Cheyenne, they could uh, charge people an admission to come watch. Yeah, and the, the Frontier Days um, rodeo, which you, is kind of the focal point of, of uh, your book, um, that's a pretty big event. And so if if listeners could go back in time and, and buy some tickets and attend, uh, what kind of things would they see? Well, yeah, actually, it's still going on today. It just happened last week. So you can go out and, and still see it. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It's still one of the biggest rodeos in the country. It goes on for a full week. Um, but back then, uh, in the very early, the first decade of the 20th century, um, you know, it started in 1897. So it was about uh, gone for about 10 years before the Hawaiians showed up. But it was this three-day uh, extravaganza of, you know, they had the classic rodeo events like uh, steer roping, uh, bronco bucking. Uh, they had a lot of races, wild horse races, where they had to get a saddle on a wild horse and, and race it around a track. But they also had these kind of, I guess you would call them uh, skits in between acts where they would, you know, they come out, they get some uh, Native Americans who would uh, attend these events. They would put on uh, performances. Uh, they would have, uh, you know, fake stagecoach holdups. They would uh, even uh, one of the biggest uh, one of the biggest draws in the world at the time was Buffalo Bill's Wild West, which was pretty much a, a living history uh, event with hundreds of people. And sometimes he would pull up outside the gates of Cheyenne and set up shop. So it was, you know, parties at night, music, dancing and drinking. And during the day, it was uh, just cowboy stuff end to end. All right, and so what are the, the four characters that you profile in the book? You you look at um, four individuals of the, the Hawaiian cowboys, the, the Paniolo, uh, Akua Purdy, Eben and Jack Lowe, and Archie uh, Kaua. Um, what can you tell us about them? Well, like like we were saying before, Eben was the uh, the one-handed Paniolo who was determined to uh, to show the rest of the world how good and how skilled uh, the Hawaiian cowboys were. So he was traveling around the U.S. in 1907, and you know he, he went from one end of the country to the other. He stopped by the White House, said hi to Teddy Roosevelt, as you apparently could back in those days, and ended up in Cheyenne just in time to see the, the Frontier Days competition. And, you know, this was considered the best, uh, the best of the best in uh, American cowboys. And he was more or less sitting on the fence thinking, you know, these guys are pretty good, but uh, I bet my cousins back home can beat him. So he ended up organizing a, uh, a rodeo in Honolulu later that year and invited some of the best cowboys from places like Wyoming and Texas to come out and compete. And basically setting the stage for the big showdown in 1908, where uh, three of his cousins, who were considered the three most talented Paniolo in Hawaii, uh, traveled for the first time outside the islands for any of them. They traveled all the way across the Pacific, across half of the U.S., and showed up in Cheyenne. So these three guys, um, you know, they were definitely the the, the best of the best. Um, you know, Jack Lowe and Archie Kawa were uh, incredibly talented. But of the three, uh, Ikua Purdy 
the one who there's a statue of now in the parking lot, uh, he was by far considered the, the best Paniolo in Hawaii. Um, even some of his descendants today, who we got a chance to talk to, said things like, you know, he would, nobody ever saw him miss with a lasso. Uh, how well were they received here on the mainland when they came and toured? It was a really interesting, uh, interesting thing to to find out. Is we, we read a lot of these old newspapers and the coverage day to day in places like Cheyenne, and it, it was it was fascinating because when the, just the idea that these guys were coming all the way from Hawaii to Cheyenne was a real kind of uh, badge of honor. You know that really showed uh, that really showed that Cheyenne was the preeminent rodeo in the U.S. So there was definitely an element of pride, saying, "Yeah, look how far people come to compete." And and there was definitely an element of curiosity too. They'd never really seen anybody that looked like these guys, you know, from the Pacific Islands. Uh, and, but there was also, you know, so they put them on the front page of the newspaper and said, "Hey, look at these guys. They're here. Isn't that great?" Uh, they say they're pretty good. Uh, they're from this place called Hawaii that uh, was actually had become part of the U.S. ten years before, but a lot of people didn't even really know it yet. So uh, they they considered them foreigners, basically, even though they were technically Americans. But it was also interesting to watch the tone of coverage change over the few days that the rodeo was going on as these uh, Paniolos showed what they could actually do. So from from day to day, the, the coverage in the newspaper goes from, you know, more or less kind of patronizing in the beginning to, OK, let, let's get serious, guys. We got to we got to send these guys packing, show them what we can do here in Wyoming. And uh, there are some differences in the ways that. Um the, the Paniello approach these these rodeo um, skills versus their continental American counterparts. And, and those went on display in the competition, right? Yeah, it started out with uh, their gear, which was, you know, for the most part, your classic uh, classic cowboy setup. You know, they had the saddles and the boots and the spurs and the, the cowboy hats. But, you know, there were little subtle differences, like their, their brims of their hats were a little bit bigger because they had to contend with storms and, and rain and sun in Hawaii. Uh, probably the biggest difference was their lassos, which they made out of braided rawhide instead of the, the hemp fiber that they used on the mainland. That was because in the damp uh, conditions out in the islands, uh, rawhide lasted longer when it got wet. Uh, and they also had some slightly different roping techniques, uh, which evolved in the jungles of Hawaii where they would so they wouldn't necessarily right. uh, rope a cow in the same way that they would on the mainland. Uh, Ikua Purdy was famous for what they called a side throw, where he would literally throw a huge loop out to his side, and the steer would run through the loop halfway, and then he'd jerk it shut. So he ended up uh, roping the cattle around their, their rear ankles. And once they, he pulled the rope tight, the animal would just kind of lay out flat on the ground instead of roping them around the horns and, you know, making them flip like they did a lot of times in the mainland. So there was, there was the subtle differences that, uh, that people definitely noticed. And so what can you tell us about the, the first two days of the competition, the, the qualifying round, if you will? So the way it worked in this competition was there was uh, three parts to it. First of all, uh, half of the competitors competed and they, and then the other half competed against each other, and they picked the the top four from those groups, two and two from each groups, to compete in the finals. So the first of the Hawaiians to come out was uh, Jack Lowe, and he he 
he did okay. His uh, his time wasn't the greatest. He he drew a, a somewhat difficult steer. You know, they had the the random drawing of which steer you got, and it turned out that he also had an asthma attack right as he was trying to tie the animal up. So his time was somewhat over two minutes to make the tie. So it really wasn't that impressive. So uh, locals, you know, they were thinking, yeah, like these guys are supposed to be great, but look at that, they're they're not they're not all that. But but, but still, I mean, roping a steer in two minutes that that impresses me. Yeah, yeah, me too. But when your competition is doing it in more close closer to a minute, uh, it's not uh, it's not all that impressive. I mean, today they're doing it in like ten fifteen seconds, although it's a very different uh, faster event. But so when uh, when Archie and Ikua got their chance to show their stuff, they did a lot better. And that was when the the local cowboys and local papers were thinking, OK, these guys are serious. Now we really got to put them in their place. So on the final day of the competition, it was Archie and Ikua against uh, two of the best local cowboys in a four way showdown. And that's uh, that's when we have our climax of the book. Um, what? What can you tell us about how Hawaii entered into the uh, uh, fold of the United States in, in the late 1800s? Yeah, the history of Hawaii in relation to the U.S. Um, w- was definitely a, a very important part of the context of this whole story. So Hawaii, you know, obviously started, they started out as a monarchy. They had a queen um, it, and she was eventually overthrown by basically U.S. business interests till the end of the 19th century. And the islands were forcibly annexed. We basically took them over as a country. So, and that was a really traumatic event for, you know, these, this proud Hawaiian culture where this big uh, empire had just stepped in and say, nope, you know, you're, you're part of us now. And that happened roughly about the same time that uh, Frontier Days started. So when the Hawaiians, when these guys showed up in Frontier Days in 1908, it was almost exactly 10 years since the islands had been annexed. So, you know, they didn't really set out to be cultural ambassadors. They, they crossed an ocean and, and half a continent to just compete and show how good they were. But as it turned out, they, they became kind of uh, yeah, unlikely cultural ambassadors. And when they returned home, they were celebrated as heroes. They had parades and luau's and poetry in their honor. and they were a really big deal at the time in Hawaii. There, you know, there's a quote in one of the newspapers where it said, showed the U.S. that we, we were more than a hula platform in the mid-Pacific. So there was, there was definitely a lot of pride in what these three guys had done in Cheyenne. So that, you know, that ties together the history of the American West and the history of Hawaii. And they all kind of came together at this one point in history. All right. And, and what um, kind of the last thing I'll, I'll ask you today is, is what's the state of Paniolo, Paniolo culture a uh, hundred years later? Well, it's, it's obviously not as uh, extensive as it was back when um, cattle ranching territory covered a third of the entire Hawaiian islands. I mean, at one point, uh, the largest privately owned ranch in the United States was in Hawaii. Uh, but today there still are some pretty extensive ranches, mostly on the big island, including the Parker Ranch, where these guys got their start you know, a hundred so years ago. Um, in terms of actual authentic horseback Paniolo, they're probably down to the dozens now. A lot of uh, a lot of the cattle management is done on ATVs, uh, but there still are some guys that use horses. And the, in terms of the the local pride and the traditions, though, that's that's definitely strong. They have they still have a lot of local rodeos. 
They have uh, Western Week in uh, in certain places on the islands. And there's, yeah, there's definitely a, a knowledge and a pride in the Paniolo tradition and in how it's unique to the islands. Um, and there's, you know, people know vaguely about the story of Ikua Purdy. Um, a lot of people have heard about it and they know just the, the very most general outlines of the story. Uh, but in terms of really digging in deep to the to the actual account and all the details, um, we really got a lot of uh, encouraging, positive feedback from folks in Hawaii saying, you know, we I heard of this story, but I never really knew all the details and, you know, really appreciate you uh, digging the whole thing up. Well, that's great that, that you guys, with your research, have been able to kind of fill out and flesh out their uh, heritage for them a little bit. Yeah, that's what we really tried to uh, to get inside the heads of these guys who, you know, to be honest, they in a way they were kind of the the classic uh, cowboy character where they were they were, they wanted to be judged more by their actions than their words, uh, especially Ikua Purdy, who was definitely a man of few words but impressive action. So uh, yeah, we we tried to get in get inside these guys' heads and then just flesh out the the bigger historical context, and you know also show some of the incredible action that was going on back then too. Yeah, and you. You guys do a good job of, of writing about um, the, and I, I guess the state of limbo that Hawaiian identity was in at, at this point, where they're kind of not sure how much they should embrace being American versus preserving their Hawaiian background. Yeah, they they ended up becoming really the first uh, first non-political heroes in Hawaii, and they you know it was it was a role that didn't really sign up to play and. They didn't, you know, milk for the rest of their life, uh, which is, you know, just kind of what the the cowboys, you know, pretty much anywhere they do. They, they'd rather be judged by, you know, their skill. They, they'd rather be out there roping cattle than, you know, parading down the street, shooting blanks. You know, they're, they're not really into the uh, the Buffalo Bill pageantry spectacle side of things, at least until you get older and you can't do the job anymore. But, yeah, it was it was definitely a it was a fascinating story. And. You know, not every story you come across as a nonfiction writer uh, really pays out. You know, some are only some are only worth a few paragraphs, some are worth an article. But every once in a while, you come you're lucky enough to come across one that the more you dig, the more the more comes out, and you actually have to to hold off on some of the side stories just to cram it all into one book. Well, Julian, uh, this this book was a lot of fun to read. Uh, it was. Um the characters were really uh, engaging individuals so it was, it was fun to, to um, track their uh, progress uh, going into this competition if if someone wants to um, read how they fare in the finals uh, where can they go where can they get a copy of the book and learn more about you guys and your research well it's uh, it's available uh, at your local bookstores uh, anywhere online Amazon um, Powell's IndieBound um, there's a, an audiobook version. You can get it on the Kindle, uh, just about uh, anywhere you can buy books. All right, Julian. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Kevin. It's fun. Thank you for tuning in to episode 21 of the Can't Make This Up History podcast. If you would like to learn more about David and Julian's book, Aloha Rodeo, you will find a link to the book down in this episode's description in your podcast app. If you liked what you heard today, head on over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and consider leaving the show a five-star review. Those reviews are extremely helpful in getting the word out to new listeners. All right, that's it for me for this episode. 
I will see you back here in three weeks on Tuesday, August 20th, where I have a special surprise planned for you. See you then.